Open your Bibles to the book of Romans as we come back to this great book. Uh, We began a few weeks ago and now are having a chance to get into the main body of the letter. Verses 16 and 17 are our focus this morning. As Paul has sort of introduced in the first 15 verses, if you will, the purpose of the letter in the sense that he wanted to connect with this church. We've looked at it. He wanted to be helped on his way by them on his mission to Spain. And while that's the overall purpose of the letter to to make this connection, to make this partnership, the book has a more central theme, if you will. It's a theme of the book and it's a theme of the partnership. It's the thing that Paul as he enters into this partnership, wants to establish with them to make sure, if you will, that they're all on the same page. And it becomes, in these couple of verses, the launching pad from which Paul will then spend the next 14 chapters unfolding for us in glorious detail. But he summarizes it for us here in these couple of verses where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul begins, if you will, the enunciation of the theme of the gospel with his declaration that he's not ashamed of it. He introduces a concept of shame that really hasn't been in the text yet. In fact, he he really had just said, you remember in verse 15, that he was eager to come to Rome. He was eager to come because he was eager to preach the gospel. And so he introduces here a sort of a contrast between that eagerness and the potential or the alternative of someone who might be ashamed of the gospel. Would have been incredibly relevant, of course, for the people to whom he's writing, who were in the capital city, who were in the financial center, the cultural center, the political center, the educational center of the entire Roman Empire. And it would be as intimidating to them as it would be for us to stand maybe on Capitol Hill or to stand on Wall Street or to stand in the middle of Hollywood or wherever the centers of our culture are and to make a proclamation of the gospel in those kind of places, it would have been just as intimidating for anyone in those days to walk down the streets of Rome or to place themselves in that context and to preach this message. Paul, of course, would have been familiar with the kind of reaction. He's already seen it all over the Roman Empire. He's already been imprisoned a couple of times at this point. He's been ridiculed. He's been stoned even in one place and left for dead. I mean, he's called a blasphemer in Jerusalem. He's called a babbler in Athens. He's called a fool in Corinth. He's called all kinds of things. His name is dragged through the mud. He's ridiculed and spurned wherever he turns. This is a man who had every reason to want to shrink away from proclaiming boldly the gospel. And yet here he stands and says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. I mean, he will even go on, you remember, in just a few verses 
to elucidate uh, the, the unbelieving mind in some of the clearest exposition of that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. He says in verse 22 that although the unbelieving world knows God, that is to say they can see the evidence of God around them in creation, although they know God, he says, they do not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish heart was darkened, claiming to be wise... They became fools. He says down in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know, uh, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This was not a man who was naive about what he faced. This was a man who understood as well as anyone throughout all time exactly what was confronting him when he presented the gospel to an unbelieving world. He understood that he was dealing with darkened minds. He understood that he was dealing with people who hated God, as he says. He understood that he's dealing with people, as he says in another place, who have a tendency to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He understood that they claim to be wise whenever they do this. That in their rejection of the truth, they take their stand as learned. We all have had to face this in our life. We've all had to face the sin of shame. We've all had to face the sin of wanting to shrink back despite the fact that our Savior told us time and time again that to do so was sinful. And yet when when we interact with unbelievers, we're hesitant to bring up the gospel. We don't do it, nor do we even seek out whether the people that we interact with on a daily basis even know it. We sense that people are intimidated by the issue of spiritual things. We sense that they are offended. We, we sense that they may label us as naive or as mean-spirited or as backward or as whatever. We sense that it is distasteful in common company. And we sense there may be ridicule. And so we struggle against the sin of being ashamed. But here's a man who understood all of that. He understood all of that and he had faced all of that. And yet he's making his declaration that he is not ashamed. Or some people note that this is probably a figure of speech, a a negative statement, really trying to say something positive, which is essentially that Paul is proud of the gospel. He's honored to be able to speak it, that he's confident in it. 
It's really just restating, as we said, what he just said in verse 15. He's eager to preach this gospel. So, so what is it? Why is it that he is so eager? What is it that makes Paul so honored whenever he takes this gospel, wherever he goes, to take it up on his lips and to proclaim it to people who, who he knows already so many of them are going to reject it? What is it? Well, it basically gives two explanations here, two reasons why he's not ashamed of the gospel. First of all, in verse 16, he says, it's the power of God for salvation. And then secondly, in verse 17, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And we want to take a couple of moments to just look at these two reasons, to understand them, to try to better grasp why these things gave Paul so much boldness, why these things led him to so much pride in being able to share the gospel, why these things eliminated shame for him as he went about preaching it. And the first reason he gives to us why he's not ashamed of the gospel is simply that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He's not ashamed of the gospel because in the preaching of it, God's power is at work. And Paul's not saying, look, I'm not ashamed because I preach the gospel powerfully. He's not referencing, in other words, his presentation or his powerful preaching or his own personality. He's not suggesting this is anything particular to him, but it's particular to the gospel. When the gospel is clearly enunciated and explained, he says it facilitates the power of God. Something powerful takes place in the preaching of the gospel. This power that he's talking about is particularly, he says, for salvation. It is, in other words, in the realm of salvation that Paul's thinking of this power. God's power obviously works in a number of different ways, in a number of different realms. And in the physical realm, he works powerfully in signs and wonders sometimes. And so that's certainly something you could point to as God's power. But when Paul speaks about power on display here, he's talking about power in the sense of salvation. And you have to understand that when you're talking about salvation, what you're talking about is essentially an eschatological or a final event. We know that salvation brings benefits that we enjoy in the present. We know that it brings joy, it brings hope, it brings all of these things. But at its very basic sense, salvation is a reference to our escape, if you will, or our salvation from condemnation. It is, it is speaking about the final reckoning of our lives. It is speaking about God's saving us from the punishment that we deserve for our sins. This is the power that Paul speaks of here. It's a change in status. It's a change in standing. It means the power may not necessarily even be visible it's not as if paul says look when i go out there and preach just you know sparks fly and explosions go off and these wonderful visible things are taking place that's not what he had in mind when he speaks about this power the power itself isn't necessarily visible but it's real and it's weighty 
If you've ever been in a courtroom when the verdict is handed down and, and the judge comes in and all of the people are standing there or they're sitting there or whatever, they're waiting to hear the words and, and it can be something of a surreal experience if you're the one who's accused and you're there and the judge stands up to speak and he says that you are guilty. And there may not be anything visible necessarily that takes place, but something powerful just happened in that moment. You went from being a free person to being a condemned person. You went from being a a person in freedom to a person in bondage. And if it's a weighty sin, it could be bondage for life. It could possibly even be death. And people in that experience have described it as a surreal experience because because it takes time for them to process the reality. They, they can't believe what they're hearing or what they're experiencing. And it may take them days before it finally sinks in what just happened. But it doesn't, it doesn't detract from the moment of that power. The moment when you are declared, the moment when you, are, when you go from being someone who is innocent or presumed innocent to a person who's declared to be guilty. This is the power that Paul has in mind. This powerful transaction. This is what is facilitated through the preaching of the gospel. Literally a power of moving people from condemnation to salvation. Uh, Literally the power of shifting their entire eternity. We often associate with this all other, all sorts of other manifestations of the power of God, the power of God to regenerate a life, the power of God to change a heart from within, the power of God, as the, as the prophet says, to change, uh, a, a, an Ethiopian can't change his skin and a, a leopard can't change his spots, so too we being evil can't change our own hearts. And yet the power of God has the ability to change us from within, to completely remake us so that we're new creatures in Christ. He has the the ability to completely renew our minds, to give us totally different worldviews, new affections, to move us from being someone who is spiritually dead to someone who's spiritually alive, to take us from someone who is dead to spiritual things to someone who is alive to spiritual things. And all of that is the power of God. But what Paul has particularly in focus here is the power in terms of salvation. It's power in respect to salvation. He says this is what is facilitated by the gospel to everyone who believes. That's this phrase there. To everyone who believes. This means that this is the way we access this salvation. This is the, if you will, the appointed condition that God has established for all those who will be saved. And for Paul, this was just an overwhelming thought. That that transaction... And what monumentally was taking place in the preaching of the gospel, this was an overwhelming thought. This, was, this is something that, that moved him beyond the focus of the rejection, beyond the focus of the ridicule, beyond the focus of all of that stuff to the bigger picture. 
Paul understood how foolish it would be for us to go around so concerned about the ridicule and the mocking and the jeering of all the public when we are the ones who stand in the league with the judge. It would be, it would be as, as foolish as a bailiff in the courtroom to be intimidated and weak-kneed in the face of a mocking and jeering criminal when he has all the authority of the judge behind him. Paul knew where he stood. He knew on whose side he stood. And he gave him tremendous amount of boldness, tremendous amount of confidence, tremendous amount of pride in preaching the gospel. This is God's plan, he says, to bring people to salvation through faith. It's to, he says, the Jew first and also to the Greek. He doesn't elaborate on it here, but he will certainly in the, in the times to come. This is the way God is working out this salvation. This is the way God is demonstrating, if you will, this powerful working. He's demonstrating it to the Jew first. There, there was sort of a historical priority to that where the Jews were the ones who first received the word of God. They were the ones who received the prophets of God. They had the covenants of God, the promises of God. They had all the, the natural benefits historically. But it, it isn't just a historical factor that Paul's talking about. There was, a, there was an economy of, uh, of salvation which in God's economy prioritized the Jews and powerfully worked and will work among them because Paul will go on to speak not only of those historical advantages, but he'll even speak about the particular and ultimate bringing about of salvation on a national scale for the Jews. So this is, a, this is sort of a theological statement here that God has worked, God has chosen to work powerfully through the preaching of the gospel and he's chosen to do it among the Jews but it isn't just them you might have that sort of particularism built in but at the same time there's a universalism because as he says it's to everyone else to the Jew first and also to the Greek that would be all the non-Jews at least in in this context that's the way Paul's using the word literally to anyone who believes among all the peoples the person who expresses faith in Jesus Christ they experienced this powerful transaction. And this was so this was so full of power. This was so magnanimous in Paul's mind. He he was proud. He was proud to proclaim it wherever he went. And there was no sense of shame. But he has a further reason why he's unashamed in verse 17. It wasn't just the fact that it was the power of God that was revealed, but also the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, he says, is revealed in this gospel. And this phrase is used eight times, the righteousness of God, used eight times in the book of Romans, only one time anywhere else in the New Testament. In other words, this is a, this is a core uh, phrase for the book of Romans is a distinctive quality of the book of Romans. It is central 
to the whole message, and therefore it's vital for us to understand, not just because of its centrality in the book of Romans, but it's really vital for us to understand because of its centrality to the gospel itself. It's central to the book of Romans because it's central to the gospel. And because it's central to the gospel, as you might imagine, it has been the focus of great debate, even great attack. Some of it really built on very technical information, especially of late. Uh, And yet, despite that, it is incumbent, it's, it's imperative on us to, if you will, inoculate ourselves in every way against all of this error because of the centrality of where this phrase stands because of the centrality of the truth of the righteousness of God even if it means wading through some some technical material we need to understand this so that we are not left unprepared if we encounter these kinds of attacks and to do that I want to just lead you this morning through just a couple of background discussions if you will when it comes to this phrase, the righteousness of God, and, and trying not to be too technical, but trying to bring you up to speed so that you are not left unprepared. And the place to begin really is in the Old Testament, really with the whole idea of righteousness. And to summarize it, you know, we could look at Isaiah chapter 5 because you'll find there this most basic sense of righteousness as a judgment. That is to say that righteousness is essentially a declaration by a judge. And you can see that clearly in Isaiah chapter 5 where where Isaiah is talking about wicked judges in the court system of Israel who he says among other things in Isaiah 5:23 These wicked judges who acquit the guilty for a bribe, or as the New King James says, the New American Standard, other translations, they justify the guilty for a bribe. This is the same basic word uh, that is translated as righteous or make righteous or justify over and over again in the New Testament, it's, used, it's, it's, it's a word that you find here in the Greek Old Testament. It's the old Hebrew word that uh, stands behind all of it. The basic word is tzedek, a sense of righteous, rightness. And what he's saying here is that these judges cause someone to be righteous. It's a, it's, a, it's a causative sense in the Hebrew, hifil if you're a Hebrew scholar here. It's a, it's a causative force where what he's saying is that these unrighteous and ungodly judges, not because of uh, internal quality of the person, not even because of the external quality of the person. In fact, it clearly says that these people are guilty, but on the basis of a bribe, on the basis of some unjust system, these judges make someone righteous. You see, what they're doing is they're making a declaration. They're making a judgment. 
And this is the sense that you find all over the Old Testament. Righteousness is fundamentally being right according to a judge. Of course, most frequently what you find is the one who's presented as the judge is, of course, God. And it's His judgment that really matters, right? In the end, it's really His judgment that matters. Now, you take that basic sense of rightness according to God's judgment and you combine that together with another observation. And it's the fact that in the Old Testament, the righteousness of God is often used in parallel with the salvation of God. Not only do you find those two things used in parallel, but you often see them spoken of as being manifest, as being made known, or as being revealed. And we couldn't take you through all of them because they are just way too numerous, but I want to show you just a couple. If you look at Psalm 92... For example, the psalmist says it this way. He says, The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. So there in Psalm 98.2, you have all three of those concepts. His salvation, His righteousness, and it being revealed. You go over to the book of Isaiah again, this time in chapter 46. Isaiah 46 Verse 13, right there at the end of that chapter, the very last verse, this is what the, this is what the uh, prophet says, Isaiah 46, 13, I bring near my righteousness, it's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. Once again, you have righteousness and you have salvation. You go to Isaiah 51, in verse 5, You hear the same thing. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. The next verse at the end, he says, My salvation will be forever. My righteousness will never be dismayed. You go down to verse 8. My righteousness will be forever. My salvation to all generations. You go over to chapter 56. In verse 1, you see the same thing. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. And so you just see this again and again and again. Righteousness and salvation. Righteousness and salvation. You can go to chapter, 50, uh, chapter 62 and it's not God's righteousness but even Israel's righteousness. He says in Isaiah 62, 1, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as the burning torch. And so you you see this combination again and again and again. The same combination that Paul brings together in Romans 116 and 17. The, The power of God for salvation because the righteousness of God is revealed. You see Paul bringing those same concepts together that are repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. Now all this has led, in recent years, a number of people to suggest that married together, or they would even say fundamental 
to the idea then of the righteousness of God is His faithfulness to His covenant or His faithfulness to His promise. Covenant faithfulness, they say, is fundamental to the righteousness of God. So much so that whenever you encounter the phrase in the New Testament, you should automatically think, they say, in those terms, covenant faithfulness, covenant faithfulness. Well, by emphasizing that, they are necessarily, sometimes explicitly, diminishing any idea of a legal declaration or anything that we might consider forensic declaration. Forensic is just a word for legal. The idea that God would declare someone else as being right or simply the idea that God would, would, would make this legal declaration over them, they say is off the table because when you see righteousness of God, you should immediately default to this idea of His faithfulness. It's all about Him. It has nothing to do with you. But you see this idea of forensic righteousness, this idea of a declaration about us, this is at the very core of the Protestant church. This was at the very core of the Protestant Reformation. It was this idea that the only way for a man to be right before God, the only way for him to have a standing before God wasn't by him earning it. It wasn't by him adhering to some sort of external standard. It wasn't by any of that. It was only by God declaring him to be right on the basis of the work of Christ. And you see it most clearly, if you have your Bibles flip over to Philippians, you see it most clearly in the one other place of the New Testament where this phrase, the righteousness of God, is used. Paul uses it in Philippians to describe a kind of righteousness which is alien to himself. He says in Philippians 3.9 that he wants to be found in Christ Jesus not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's translated there, the righteousness from God, even though it's the same phrase as you find in Romans. Because it's, it's almost universally recognized that what he's talking about here is clearly a right standing on our behalf. What he's talking about here is clearly something that God imparts. He's not simply talking about God's faithfulness to his own covenant here. He's talking about a, a, a declaration, he's talking about having faith in Jesus Christ in contrast to keeping all these laws and this being the shift, this being the basis of your standing before God. Now this was the idea that launched the Protestant Reformation. This was the idea that it was that the heart of Martin Luther. This was the idea that led to the, 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 the movement that so many people gave their lives for, that so many people 
battled over. This was the idea that fundamentally led to a break with the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. This was the idea that God makes a declaration of our right standing before Him simply on the basis of our faith. So that we stand justified or we stand made righteous by God's declaration. But over the last 50 years, that's become a a place that uh, is severely, or a position that is severely attacked. And not from the Catholic Church, from within the Protestant Church. Even uh, from one like uh, D.A. Carson, who doesn't hold to that view, still acknowledges that those of us like himself, like us who hold the traditional Protestant view, are clearly now in the minority. Those of us who would hold to a forensic view of justification, those of us who would believe that this is about God declaring who's righteous and who's not, have lost our way, many people would say. We've imposed on the text which what's not really there we have we have allowed the the personal psychological struggles of a of a middle uh, uh, a uh, medieval monk named Martin Luther to distort the way we read the Bible. They would say, however, if you go back and you read the Old Testament and you see this combination of God's righteousness and God's salvation, then you're going to come to the conclusion that righteousness of God means God's own faithfulness to His own promises. Nothing to do with forensic declaration. But you know, that's not really true. These people would want you to think that the evidence is overwhelming. But it's really not. It is, like so many cases, selective Because in many cases in the Old Testament, what you find is this same term, the righteousness of God being revealed, but not in terms of God being faithful to His own people, but actually in terms of God judging nations. In other words, the righteousness of God is often combined not with God's faithfulness to a promise He made to someone, but in God's judgment. And this is the way that He makes known His righteousness. Or we would say this is the way He makes known His judgment. This is the way God makes His declaration known. He makes it known sometimes in salvation for His people, but He makes it known sometimes in judgment of others. As a matter of fact, those who would proclaim that God's righteousness is so interwoven with His covenant faithfulness have overlooked the fact that these two words, covenant and righteousness, are hardly ever used in the same context. Now you would think that if if the idea of God's own faithfulness to His covenant was so fundamental and so core to this notion, you would think that this would be frequently mentioned together in the Old Testament, but it's not. It's not. 
And it's not because that's not what's behind this whole idea. God certainly is faithful to His covenant. God certainly is faithful to His promise. But that's not what this is about. No, the righteousness of God always has the idea of God making a judgment. God making a declaration. And in making that declaration, He saves or He judges. He makes His salvation known. He makes His declaration known. He makes His righteousness known. He does all of this. And the Scripture brings those two ideas together again and again and again. And this is exactly what you see Paul bringing together here, not only in this statement where he says that the the gospel is the power of God for salvation, making known the righteousness of God, but even more so if you have your uh, Bibles, you can flip over to... Romans chapter 3, where Paul unfolds this further. Romans 3, in verse 21, he will return to this whole idea with all of the same language, but with much more clarity. He says this, Now the righteousness of God has been made manifest, or has been manifested, has been revealed, has been made known. It's been manifested, he said, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Same root word there. We are made righteous by His grace as a gift. Can't look into that passage and walk away the notion that this is all about God's faithfulness to himself and to his covenant. This is all about God's declaration that comes to us by faith. And this is, this is what God, he, Paul says, is making known. This is what God is declaring. In fact, go back to Romans 1 because Paul says God is revealing this, not in the sense that people are understanding or apprehending it mentally, cognitively, but what he's saying is in the sense that this is how it takes effect. This is how it's operative. He's using it, in other words, the same way he uses the word in verse 18. Because in verse 18, Paul says that God is making his wrath known or God's wrath is being revealed. And really what he's setting up is a contrast. In verse 17, God's righteousness is revealed. In verse 18, God's wrath is revealed. But he's not saying simply that people see God's wrath, that they mentally comprehend God's wrath. He's saying that God's wrath is operative or God's wrath is taking effect in certain ways, such as giving people over to a debased mind or allowing them to defile themselves. This is the way God's wrath is operating or being made manifest among us, while at the same time, God's declaration of who is right. God's declaration of who is with Him. God's declaration of who will be saved. It's operating. It's working itself out, Paul says, through faith. Working itself out through faith. Or as he says here in verse 17, it's actually operating from faith to faith. It's a difficult statement. A lot of people have wrestled what that means but it probably just restates what he just said in verse 16, 
when he talked about uh, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, here he most likely is just suggesting that it's operating from one person's faith to the next person's faith. From faith to faith. Or as he even comes back in Romans 3.21, talks about that the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For every person who has faith. From one person's faith to the next. So the righteousness of God, the declaration from God about who is right is being made manifest from one person to the next. Every person who believes, every person who responds in faith, they are experiencing the power of God. They're finding themselves right with God. Paul validates all this with a quote from the Old Testament. Just as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. He quotes from the book of Habakkuk. It was quite a popular quote, used even a number of times outside of Scripture by Paul's contemporaries in the Jewish culture. But Paul uses it twice. It's used one time by the writer of Hebrews that was popular even within the New Testament. And they picked up on this book that was so meaningful in the first century to so many Jews But Paul found here this truth echoed. The book of Habakkuk really represents a a people and Habakkuk is, is giving voice to a complaint among the people of God when the, the when the the, the Chaldeans or, or the uh, uh, Babylonians were bearing down on them and And they were wondering whether or not God even sees or knows their plight. They were wondering whether God is completely indifferent to their plight. It's in this context that the prophet engages in this discussion, if you will, with God, where God is responding to these complaints. And in chapter 2, he unfolds these contrasting perspectives. People say, well, Habakkuk was really trying to explain that the person who will live is the person who has faithfulness. They would say the word has this meaning of faithfulness and that's the way Habakkuk uses it. So Paul is either misusing Habakkuk or maybe even Paul is trying to uh, employ that, that meaning, saying that it's the righteous, uh, the righteous will be those who live faithfully. In other words, it will be those who have a life that is worthy of justification. But if you look back at the book of Habakkuk, you don't need to turn there, but you could study it on your own. What you'll find is not a contrast between necessarily two patterns of behavior. What you'll find is a contrast between two attitudes. Where in Habakkuk 2.4, on one hand, he speaks about the person who is puffed up, who will perish, versus the person who has faith, who will live. In other words, it's not a contrast of behaviors, it's a contrast of attitudes. On the one hand, you have the haughty. On the one hand, you have the self-sufficient. On the one hand, you, you have the proud, the puffed up. And on the other hand, you have the lowly. 
You have the broken, you have the dependent, you have the person of faith. And Paul's picking up on this and he's saying this has always been God's economy. This has always been God's plan. This has always been the way that he works out and demonstrates, if you will, his righteousness. He gives it to those who have faith. Here he says, quoting from Habakkuk, the, the, the righteous will live by faith. That word live often used in the sense of being saved. As a matter of fact, you can see it many times in contrast to those who perish. That's the way it's used in Hebrews. Hebrews contrasts it with those who perish. In Galatians 3.11, Paul contrasts it with those who are cursed because they don't do what's written in the book of God's law. So this contrast is often between the perishing and the ones who are being saved. Those who are cursed versus those who are not because they're being saved. Paul's using this, I believe, in exactly the way that Habakkuk wanted it to be used. That the ones who will be saved, the ones who will be made right, the ones who will be saved and, and, and declared righteous in the full sense of God's salvific word shown throughout all the Old Testament are those who have faith. This is why Paul was so excited. This is why Paul was so confident to proclaim this message. That's why he wasn't ashamed. Because this is the declaration in the midst of a world of people who uh, are ridiculing God, spurning God, hating God, turning away from God. Paul took great pride in declaring who God was declaring was right. He took great pride in declaring the power of God through the gospel of God to make people right for everyone who believes. It is a powerful thing. You go from, in one moment, someone under the condemnation of God. You go from one moment, someone who's alienated from God. You go in one moment, someone who your only hope is to stand before God and answer for all of your own sins and you have none. No sin, no, excuse me, no answer. You go from, in one moment, someone who has not a leg to stand on to in the next moment declared by God as being right with Him. Declared by God as being saved. It's a powerful thing, but it only comes to those who respond in faith. It's a powerful thing, Paul says, and it comes to every person who responds in faith. Those who lay down their sins, those who lay down their self trust those who recognize that the only way they'll ever be saved is by trusting in Christ Jesus. I pray the Lord would fill us with that same confidence. I pray He would fill us with that same sense of boldness. I pray that He would eradicate all sense of shame and we'd see once again just what a glorious gospel that is. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful to you 
that you have given to us, not just your faithfulness, but you have given to us your salvation. You've given to us your righteousness. You've given to us every standing, every merit, every legal claim that we need to stand before You and to stand for all eternity. Lord, we, uh, we can only pray that we would continually let that define our understanding of the Gospel. That we would continually let that run through our veins that we wouldn't shrink back from making known that glorious message, the message of where you stand and the message of those who stand with you. Lord, you are the judge, but you're the Savior too. You're the one who in all your divine power grants to us all sufficient grace to stand forever eternity saved. Lord, we bless you and we thank you for that. We gladly proclaim it. In Christ's name, amen.